He was only 27 years old. He was way ahead of his peer. In today's language, we would say he would be an Ivy Leaguer. It'd be hard to find someone his equal, mentally, legally, professionally, a true scholar. His purpose, his goals were very specific. He was entrusted with great power and great authority to execute those responsibilities. He is sent on a mission with arrest warrants. Those warrants are sufficient to bring the death penalty if a jury, we would say in our language, would so choose. So he's got this authority, this credibility, this scholarship, and the power to enforce it to arrest those who think differently. On this journey, he is blinded and he hears a voice. Uh, the voice says to him, why are you persecuting me? His co-travelers hear the voice but see nothing. He, however, hears and sees, but then he is struck blind. And for three days he will neither eat nor drink in this spiritual blindness, this pause on his life. And a man in an area of Damascus, Syria, Syria, the same Syria we read about today, that's embroiled in such conflict, a man is tapped on the shoulder to go visit this blinded man. After some convincing, he decides to obey and goes. And he lays hands on him and he says, This Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, something called scales fall off of Saul of Tarsus's eyes, and he sees. Saul, of course, becomes Paul. To say there was a 180-degree change, we have no metric to say something greater than 180 degrees. You were a Democrat and became a Republican. Your Republican became Democrat. You were born in the South and you moved to the North. I mean, I don't know how you would say a 180 degree and with more extreme nature. There is no way to do it. Saul of Tarsus had a big 180. He's got the authority, the brain, the power, the responsibility to do a job, and that job is stopped in a moment of time. And he becomes a radical. Luke likes the word immediately. He writes, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. So the very pretense of how he was trying to arrest followers of this Jesus, now he becomes the loudest voice. And in God's wonderful humor and irony and plan, he takes a Jew's Jew and turns him into a messenger to the Gentile population. And second most large, large contributor to your New Testament, written by Paul, Luke being the first with Luke and Acts, the, the uh, Pauline literature letters that we're looking at today. Saul of Tarsus was born about 6 AD. He dies at about 60 or 61, actually martyred at age 60 or 61. So from 27 till his death, let's just say 33 years, nice round number, all he does is one thing, proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, Period. That's all he does. His singular focus is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those maps in the back of your Bible, we, we call them euphemistically the missionary journeys of Paul, little dotted lines. They were Paul going out proclaiming the gospel of Christ. He took the Great Commission from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the world, like a rock in the pond. And Paul begins to execute this great commission, and he's the apostle that goes to those different groups, and Corinth is one of them. He spends about 18 months in Corinth, and then four to five years later, the whole church has gone to pot. 
He'll write three letters. We have two of them in our New Testament. One is the so-called Lost Corinthian letter. As Lloyd illustrated last week, Corinth is corrective. On the front page of both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, I have the word corrective written in large print. Corrective. Because when you read these letters, he's correcting what has gone wrong. From factions, divisions, immorality such as not found among the Gentiles, drunken uh, exploits at the Lord's table, infighting, lawsuits between one another, all kinds of unheard. You're not supposed to do this. Cindy and I were traveling in Texas uh, recently, and I saw a couple of churches, two or three, that had the word Corinth or Corinthian in their title. I thought, oh, I guess they have sons and uh, stepsons sleeping with their mothers in those churches. I mean, why would you use that name, Corinth, over your church title? And then as I thought about it a little longer, probably pretty accurate because we're a room full of sinners. So corrective in nature, instructive nonetheless, Lloyd gave us a great introduction. I want to read the first two verses again, actually the first three verses again in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 where we'll be for this series. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died according to the scriptures. Um, there are four witches I want you to see. The left brain in the room likes Paul. We like Paul because he gives outlines, his arguments are consistent, he builds on things so that, therefore, in order that, won't bore you with the grammar aspects of what he's doing, but four times you can see the word witch in these verses. Which I preached, which you received, which you stand, by which you are saved. And for the reader and the hearer, these are verbal outlines, they're literary outlines, so we can see his point, his cadence, the case he's building. This is the gospel. I preached it to you. You received it. You believe it. You're standing in it. And it saves you. And then he well explained of first importance. Primacy. It's the main thing. Some of us are old enough to remember. Maybe if you weren't alive during the time, you've heard the story. 1961. Uh, the uh, Green Bay Packers lost a crushing defeat for the championship in the fourth quarter for NFL championship against the Philadelphia Eagles. And after the end of that season, they get a season off, and then the preseason practices, they, come, they assemble for training camp. Vince Lombardi is the coach, and um, this team that essentially had made it to the finals, we might say, uh, they're pretty good, and they think they're going to pick up where they left off. And Coach Lombardi had a different approach. In his book, When Pride Still Matters, by uh, David Marinus, he tells the story of what becomes the five most famous words in NFL history. He, Lombardi, took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming the players were blank slates and carried no knowledge of the year before. He began with the most elemental of all statements. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. And they began working with the most basic of drills of blocking and tackling for weeks. Pro bowler Max McGee uh, teased the coach at one time. Coach, uh, could you slow down a little bit? Blocking, tackling, catching, receiving, holding. This is a football. Um, that season they went on to beat the New York Giants 37-0 and win the national championship. Men and women... This is the gospel. 
It is the most important fundamental thing. There is nothing more important. It is more important than your parenting. It is more important than your marriage. It is more important than a Christian home. It is more important than your job. It is more important than your career. It is more important than your five or ten year business plan. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is by that by which we are saved. There is nothing more important. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is going to spend 33 years doing one thing, proclaiming this gospel. Nothing wrong with plans. Nothing wrong with the 100-year Japanese plan or a three- to five-year business plan. All that's good. But this is the gospel. And this is where we must begin. When Eric and Rob suggested that we take a look at the gospel, Bill, Lloyd, and I were in hearty agreement that it was a good thing to recalibrate what we're talking about at this church called Fellowship. Now, the word euangelion in Greek, two, two words we might say, eu and angelion. Eu, a euphonium, a euphemism, a good wording, a good sound. Angelion, angelos, sounds like angels, kind of. So you have a good angel. Well, and technically you do, because both the messenger and the message are good news. So it's good news. It's a good messenger who brings a good message. Before we get to the New Testament, the way euangelion was used was a good report from someone. It wasn't a patently Christian term. Listen to how the writers explaining the development of the word from Gerhard Kittel explain it. The messenger appears, his hand raised in greeting, and calls out with a loud voice, Kyrie Nikomen, meaning rejoice, we've won. By his appearance, it is known already that he brings good news. When you see him coming, and he, you, you know there's something about him, so the messenger is good because he's bringing good news. His face shines. His spear is decked with laurel. His head is crowned. He swings a branch of palms. Joy fills the whole city. Euangelia are also offered. The one to whom the message is honored with a wreath because he's bringing good news. So you put a wreath on him when he comes into the city. And on it goes. By the time of the New Testament, it becomes God's action in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the you and Gileon. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Again, Fred, Gerhard Frederick, if we were to sum up the gospel, it would be Jesus the Christ. Christ is both the subject and the object of our preaching the incarnate and the exalted one. I would say it real simply. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. What do we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our Bible? The gospels. Why do we call them the gospels? Because it's a record of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a very specific piece of what that means, but you must understand the person who he is, and what he's done, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Four different authors, big A author God, little A author Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, write these accounts of the gospel of Christ. Now, I have a theory that every organization lists to the left. Christian schools, churches, denominations, uh, 501c3 Christian organizations, you name it. Any Christian group always lists to the left. They never list back to the conservative, theologically speaking. I'm not talking politics, I'm talking liberal theology. So, for example, you may be aware, Harvard, Andover, Andover, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all those Ivy League schools began as seminaries for men only. You had to have a proficiency in the ancient languages to go to those schools with the objective of becoming a minister, or a seminary professor, or a theologian. 
They were not the finest universities in the world for a liberal arts education. They were seminaries, but they listed to the left. Most of our mainline denominations started out with a grounding in Scripture, and they moved away. That's why the Bible church movement began. That's why fellowship began, because churches moved away from teaching the Scripture. I've said it before, last hour, I'll say it again and again and again. When, I hope not, if fellowship ever lists from teaching a clear text, leave. Leave. Go find a church that does. We may never be the biggest, most important church in the area. We don't care. We want to be, have a fidelity and a commitment to God's word by his spirit to his people. That's our objective. God's word, God's people, God's spirit. To be transformed, to be what we're not, to be what we're supposed to become. And when and if we ever move off that, leave. Go somewhere else. Because you want to be a part of a church, an organization, a mission group, an effort, an 5-1-C-3 that is clearly attached to the gospel. Well, what does the gospel accomplish? And what do you know about it? And what do you believe? Let's look at part of this again today. I want to reread verses 3. I'll read through verse 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Just like we had the word which in the first verses, now we have the word that. And you're going to see it four times here. That, first one, he was, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. And we're going to look at those one at a time. The first, that he died for our sins, that he died for our sins. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Big words, substitutionary atonement. All that means is that he died in our place on our behalf instead of us. Christ died in your place on your behalf instead of you. Say it with me. In our place on our behalf instead of us. One more time. In our place on our behalf instead of us. Last time. In our place, on our behalf, instead of us. That's substitutionary atonement. Now, this is taught throughout Scripture. It's not a new doctrine. In fact, Isaiah 53, 5, it's alluded to four times in one verse. Listen carefully. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Pierced through. He died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. Right? It's second phrase. He was crushed for our iniquities. That goes back to Genesis 3.15. He's crushed for our iniquities. Thirdly, he was the chastening of us all uh, for our well-being. Uh, excuse me, the chastening of us all fell on him in our place on our behalf. And the last one, by his scourging we are healed. Or the king said, by his stripes we are healed. So each one of those four allusions is to in our place on our behalf instead of us. Christ died for our sins. Um, Eric referenced it before, and it's exactly right. World religious systems are a system of do's and don'ts. It's this set of imperceptible scales in our head that we don't do the things, don't do these and do these things. And when you do the things you're not supposed to do, do some things you're supposed to do, and maybe there's some kind of equilibrium in the end, and the scale will tip just a little bit. We've done a few more of the do's and not too many of the don'ts, and we might get into paradise, heaven, Erewhon, whatever. Every global religion is based on a construct of do's and don'ts. Every global religion. Islam is based upon five pillars. Uh, Armenian religions are based upon do's and don'ts, or you'll lose your salvation. Biblical Christianity teaches something very different that he died in our place, 
on our behalf instead of us. And by that, we are forgiven. We have a relationship with him. This is the confirmation of him dying in our place. Now, it's, it's not a great illustration, but it's illustrative. Um, we have these little babies. I saw a bunch in the uh, lobby this morning, and grandbabies, of course, are the best, right? Uh, little babies. And when that firstborn baby is born, uh, they're what? They're perfect. They're the most beautiful, they're the first baby ever born, and the most beautiful baby ever born. And you love them, and they're innocent, right? What do we mean by that? They've not yet been exposed and indoctrinated to evil. But they're not innocent. They're quite depraved. Now, even though that's your grandchild, I'm just telling you, they're quite depraved. Because as any mom in this room can tell you, in a very early period, they're going to arch their back. They're going to bite. All kind, even when they're a little tiny, precious little innocent infant. And if you don't think they're depraved, just go in the learning center for about an hour in the toddler or the two-year-old room, and you'll see depravity running all around. It's kind of like spiritual cancer. There are theories that we all carry cancer, but some of us immunology-wise can hold it back. It's a theory, not for sure. And when it breaks loose, of course, it's what it is. So for illustration purposes, let's say we all have spiritual cancer, and it's called sin. And there are, let's just say, a thousand, roughly, religions, many more, that are alternative approaches to treating spiritual cancer. There's one cure died in our place on our behalf instead of us. That's substitutionary atonement. World religions say do this and don't do this, and maybe you'll go to Erewhon, Nirvana, Paradise, Heaven when you die. Biblical Christianity says if you trust in Christ and Christ alone, you will be with him forever, period. Because he died in our place on our behalf. Secondly, that he's buried. Burial is the confirmation of his death. This is interesting because it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Sometimes liberal scholars attack the New Testament and they take it apart because the Gospels say different things. Well, that's true, but it's also misrepresented. We have four authors with four personalities with four different viewpoints. Read four different news stories about this flight that crashed out of Egypt. You'll get four different pictures. You'll have very similar facts, but they'll have different nuances. Not too far of a stretch under God's intended Big A authored, little A author, the gospel writers all include Joseph of Arimathea. They all include the tomb. They all include the linen. They all include the preparation of the body. All four of them include the burial. Why? Because the burial confirms he died. He wasn't unconscious. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He didn't, his body wasn't stolen. He died and he's buried. And that confirms his humanity. Thirdly, he's raised, that he was raised. And this, of course, confirms the resurrection. Resurrection, arguably, is the most important part of the gospel. If he's not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. It's stupid. We're just another ism-ology religion if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. David Lowry writes, to reject the literal bodily resurrection of the gospel is to eviscerate or to destroy it. To you take the resurrection out, you got nothing. And it's bodily, not metaphorical, not symbolic, not spiritual. It's a literal bodily resurrection. He was physically human, completely God-man. He physically dies, and he's bodily, it's very important, he's bodily resurrected. 
Now, some of you might remember the name Christopher Hitchens. He was a prominent atheist, a brilliant man, truly a brilliant writer. And he spent uh, arguably 15, 20 years as an atheist trying to eradicate religion in his writings. This is a very brief part of an interview with a Unitarian minister. It was about one year before he passed away. Uh, Marilyn Sewell, a Unitarian ministry, minister, she asks in a, in a question statement, statement question, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith. I'm a liberal Christian, she says, and I don't take the stories of Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction between the fundamentalist faith and liberal religion, liberal faith? Now, it's, let me try to explain her question. She doesn't believe what we would believe at fellowship. I say we elders and teachers. We believe literal bodily resurrection. We believe substitute. Those are fundamentalist people. I don't believe that, she goes. I'm a Christian minister, but I don't believe in that literal stuff. So do you have a problem with me? That's her question. Make sense? That's what she says. You have a problem with me because I'm a Christian, but not like those Christians. Listen to Hitchens' response. I would say that if you don't believe in Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose from the dead, and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Hitchens knew more about the gospel than Miss Sewell. Listen again. I would say if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, that he rose from the dead, and by his sacrifice, substitute atonement, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. He continues, Christianity, remember, it was founded by St. Paul, not Jesus. Give him that one. Paul says clearly, it is, if it is not true that Jesus rose from the dead, then we Christians are of most people, all people most unhappy. If none of that's true, as you seem to say, then I have no quarrel with you. I mean, he really upbraids her for her comments. Christ died. He's buried to confirm his death. Now he's raised. And then four, he appeared, that he appeared. Eyewitnesses account. And then let's continue and look at verses 5 through 8 again. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For you BSFers, precept folks who study the Bible in some detail, if you look up verse 8, you'll see a very graphic self-description of Paul. I won't explain it, but you can look it up if you'd like. Six different appearances he chronicles. Peter, the apostles without Thomas, the 500, Jesus James, the half-brother of Jesus, then the apostles with Thomas present, and then last of all, to, to the apostle Paul. Uh, the 500 are the most compelling to me. That's about twice the size of the number of people in this room at one time. Even today, in law and in, in circumstantial versus physical evidence, one of the most compelling parts of evidential law are eyewitnesses. 
If you've got 500 people that say the same thing, that's pretty convincing. Now, certainly eyewitnesses can get their story skewed up. But if they say, we saw somebody, he had a weapon, he looked like this, he had a logo on his shirt, you see 500 people saying that, that's pretty compelling evidence for a court of law. And the same was true in antiquity. Eyewitness accounts were very important. Tandem this with the phrase, according to the scripture, which occurs twice in our passage. We won't look at these, I'll just reference two, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. When Paul says these things happened according to the scripture, he's saying this was prophesied long ago. If we take Isaiah 53 just by itself, that's 700 years before the Christ is born. Minimum, 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. 700 years before he's born, Isaiah the prophet, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, is writing the chronicle of Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 by David are called the rabbi's torture chamber. Because when you read those passages, it's almost impossible not to see Christ explained in that crucifixion scene in Isaiah chapter 53. So they, they, they make a metaphor out of it and say, no, that's not about a person. That's about the people of Israel, his chosen people who have endured so much suffering. And that's how they get around it. Otherwise, they'd have to embrace that Christ was indeed Messiah, which, of course, that would be very hard for them to do. So we have two pieces of evidence. We have the eyewitness accounts and what was written hundreds of years before his coming on scene. That's why the appearance is important. John Stott writes, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. That is a $25 quote. I love that quote. Listen again. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, fully God, fully man, if he hadn't been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. That's a pretty good distillation of the gospel. He must be fully God, fully man. He lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. The four, Paul, four that Paul uses here, number one, he died. Secondly, he was buried. Third, raised. Fourth, appeared. One more time. He died. Secondly, buried, raised, and appeared. That's what Paul's saying is the kernel of the gospel. That he lived, obviously, that he died. The burial confirms the death. The resurrection is eyewitnessed and, according to the scripture account, and that he appears to people. He lived, he died, he was buried, he's raised, and he appears to prove who he is. Um, do you know what you believe about the gospel? Do you know that 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 when you die, where you will be and with whom you will be? This is the gospel. This is the most important thing. This is the beginning. Everything else comes after understanding the gospel. You have to decide. You have to trust by faith. You have to put your trust in Christ Instead of you, on your behalf, in your place, you have to put your personal faith in Christ to do for you what you can't do for yourself. That's religion. I'm trusting him to do for me. I can never be good enough to get to God, but God was good enough to come to me in the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel.
And by faith, by belief, by trust, that's how we transfer. That's how we appropriate. That's how we express our faith in Christ, is that we believe, we trust. We put our faith in him to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. All roads lead somewhere, but only one leads to Christ. All these religious systems lead somewhere, same place actually, only one leads to Christ. And that's the one we want you to be aware of. Um, you know, I have four kids and a beautiful bride, and I love my children unconditionally. I don't always like my children. If you don't have teenagers, you don't understand that yet. Uh, I don't like my children, but I love them, and I would die for them. Um, one of our daughters, when she was young, had to have some procedures done to her, and I was elected to restrain her while they did these procedures. And my wife is sitting two doors away in the waiting room with another friend who's physically restraining her from coming back because my little daughter is screaming her head off, Daddy, make her stop, Daddy, make her stop, Daddy, make her stop. And I had, the, I had my arms around her, and her head was like here. I had to hold her while they did these procedures, this little girl. Just traumatized her. I mean, she talked about white coat for years. And um, I, I, for my first impulse was to take a tube and wrap it around that tech's neck. Uh, my second impulse was, if I could lay on that table, I'd take that test a thousand times for my little daughter. I would. I would totally take that test for my daughter a thousand times and to watch her scream, Daddy, make her stop, Daddy, make her stop, Daddy, make her stop. I'd die for her. Even today, she said, I would die for her. Wouldn't I think about it? That's how much I love her. I love Cindy. I would die for Cindy. Mostly I would die for Cindy. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I love some people so much I would be willing to die for them. I truly would. Some of you, I love enough that I'd, I'd die for you. Younger than us, younger than me. Your life's in front of you. I know where I'm going. I'd die for you. But I would not give you any of my four children to die for you. I'm sorry, you're on your own. You can't have any of my four kids. Sorry. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten, Mahogany son, so that, what? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not but have eternal life. So why is this the most familiar verse we all know? It's compelling. God sends his one and only child, firstborn son, firstborn grandchild, his one and only, to make it personal. I would not give my one son or any of my three daughters for any of you. No greater love has, man, has God than he lay, than man that he lays down his life for someone. If Jesus just dies for principle, he's worse than an organ donor. He's just a philosopher. He did nothing but deceive us. As Paul expresses, if he, Christ did not raise from the dead, we're fools. No, we're liars to teach such. Um, he died. Secondly, he was buried. Third, raised. Fourth, appeared. That's the kernel of the gospel. I was uh, a drug user uh, between, in junior high for two years, I was stoned the entire time, had hair down to here, and um, I was I was an intelligent drug user. I didn't mix my drugs, <clears throat> and um, I control. I thought I controlled myself pretty well. Had had part-time jobs, never stole for drug money, 
but I was stoned for two years solid. Weekends I would do acid and speed and the more exotic drugs. Monday through Friday I just smoked dope. Was, I mean, I was brain dead. I'm, I'm sure I lost a third of my brain those two years. Um, went to a Sunday school class, long hair, sitting there. He had a green chalkboard, white chalk. He wrote John 3.16 on the chalkboard, and he gave us a paperback copy of the Gospel of John. And we read the story of Nicodemus, which I, I perhaps I was exposed to. I don't ever remember reading it. And this is between 8th uh, uh, and ninth grade. I have to think about 8th, 9th, 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 10th. What are you when you're 15? Anyway, I was 15. And he wrote that on there. And I don't remember if I asked four questions or ten questions. But I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me all i got to do is believe? And he said, what's the verse say? For God's love of the world that he sends only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have right, What about all, and I kept asking, again, four or five questions. I don't remember. Memory fades. But I asked several questions to follow. Are you saying all I have to do is believe? And he just said, what's the verse say? And I was sitting in the far back row with the attitude and the hair and the whole nine yards, and I trusted Christ and Christ alone at that moment. And my life changed. I was drunk or stoned three subsequent times. Each time was worse than the last. And the last time I was drunk and or stoned, I, it was like God said, Michael, you're done with this. I have no explanation for it. I, I just say God took the back of his hand and knocked over that tree in my life. He said, you're done with being drunk and stoned. And in God's great kindness, since that time, I'm... 58 years of age. I've never abused prescription drugs. I've never been drunk or stoned since that day. I have no explanation for that. I didn't go to treatment. I didn't go to programs. I didn't have withdrawals. I have no explanation for it. I have friends that to this day struggle with addiction, with prescription drugs and whatnot. I, I'm not saying they're worse and I'm better. I'm just saying in God's kindness, he took that away. And I think, experientially, he took it away because had he not, it had been the end of me. And maybe he wanted to do something else with my life. I don't know. I have no explanation for that. Now, I didn't know what to do with that moment. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that drugs and alcohol no longer gave me any type of numbing or high. And I knew the people I ran with were not going to understand. And I tried to live in that for a while, but it just didn't work. And then in God's kindness, I grew and I met other people that were going the same direction. And that's why you always hear me say God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. Because you've got to have all three to grow. And so for me, that became the trajectory. And I can stand up here and tell you, I'm not any better than anyone in this room. I've got lots of other sins we could talk about, but I'm not going to. Uh, but but those, those are gone. And that to me was the most powerful illustration of forgiveness. And taking away the consequences of something that could have been my undoing. The same power that resurrected Christ from the dead gives any and all the ability to be resurrected from the dead. He forgives you of your sin. He calls you his son or daughter. He welcomes you into a family that you could not buy your way into nor be inherited by apart from his work. He calls you one of his own. He gives you a, an eternal relationship with him so that when you step over this line into that next life, you're guaranteed eternal life with him. Here's the scary part. Because we're made in the image of God, we're all going to live somewhere forever. We're not just food for worms, men and women. Because we are imago Dei, we are the image of God. We are made in his likeness, in his image. We have the capacity to have a relationship with the man, who, the sovereign who created us, men and women. Because of that, we live forever. That's why we have to all be resurrected, because these bodies cannot withstand eternal life nor eternal torment 
apart from being eternal. That's pretty creepy. The only difference is where and with whom we spend eternity. We want you to know that you know that you know that you know that you know where you're going to spend eternity. And that begins, that's that point in time salvation, and then the sanctification, as Lloyd referenced, is the growing in that relationship. Now, how are we more transformed into the image of Christ? This is the gospel. It is the main thing. It is the most important thing. From here, all things continue. But if you don't know that you know that you know, that's our prayer in the series. For those of you who do know that you're clarifying what you believe. There's intrinsic power in the story of the gospel. Just telling it is powerful. And for you who are unsure, we want you to be sure, to have great certainty. And I want you to stay with us during this series. You got questions in between now and then. You talk to Eric, Rob, me, any of the teaching pastors, and the elders, Kevin, John Mays. You talk to anyone here, we'd be happy to help you settle some of these questions. You should see my email from last week. It's joyful. People asking really good questions about things. Because this is why fellowship is a unique body. Not the only one in town. I'm not saying that. But this is why we are here. To teach God's word to God's people, empowered by God's spirit. Apart from which, you may as well go live and just do whatever you want to do. Because we're liars otherwise. Let's stand and read these three verses together. Read with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Father, help us all not to merely uh, embrace the gospel, but to understand what it means to live proclaiming Christ to those who need to know him. I pray for everyone here that they would know with certainty what it means to trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation and then what it means to grow in that relationship with him. Help us as we all limp along in this human life to know that you love us, you forgive us. Nothing we have ever done or have done or do or will do can keep us from the love of Christ. It's an amazing thing. We pray and bless in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.